You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spira-Savet, and we have more co-hosts here on the podcast than we have ever had at one time. And our newest co-host is Eric Kissack, who is editor for The Good Place. Welcome to our, our team, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Y'all rabbis want to introduce yourselves again? Sure. Hi, I'm Dan Ross. I'm one of the rabbis at Central Synagogue, and I'm here with a colleague who I will throw a t-ball to, or whatever the right term is. Hi. <laughs> Rabbi Rebecca Rosenthal. I also rabbi at Central Synagogue. I'm Sari Laufer. I have never rabbied at Central Synagogue, but I'm <laughs> rabbiing at Stephen Wise Temple in Los Angeles. And if we had a good mascot, I would say go something because Eric and I are alumni of alumni of Hunter College High School in New York City. Wasn't that the other where you had a different mascot every year? Breach. Well, there was, right. So there was, I think, like the grade picked its mascot. I still don't talk about mine. Yours was good. But then like the teams, like there was like the Purple Rain. I think we are the Hawks, technically. They're committed to the Hawks now. Oh, now they're committed (laughs) to the Hawks. Do they they play sports games with all the smartest kids in New York City? Or do they? They were really good at track. There's varsity (laughs) bowling. There's also badminton now. There's all kinds oh. of sports. Let me with a big team when I was there. But, yes, but no, I swam. In general, like track. <laughs> in general, we were all nerds and and we didn't really have muscles. So, you know, it was sort of like the, the sports were like about camaraderie and, and not really about winning. Well, we can tell already this is a little different from our, our usual podcast of Tove here. But one thing which we do always do whenever a co-host is on for the first time in a season, so I think that would be you, Eric, is ask which of the Good Place main characters do you think right today you're most like? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to say Chidi. You know, I, I feel like you probably get that answer a lot. He's He's sort of, I mean, he was always sort of designed to be the most relatable character in a way. Hmm. Uh, we can talk more about that, but 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 he, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's sort of the one that we kind of see things through a lot of a lot of the way. Like he doesn't like dive into the madness as much. He kind of is like a, a little bit of a, a, a vector for for the audience. But he's also super neurotic and and you know has a really hard time making decisions. And so, like, I don't think I don't think I, I like aspire to be cheaty, but. <laughs> There's also some personality overlaps, and, and he's also the most committed to being moral and 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 trying to find the, the most righteous way to, to make his way through the, the afterlife. And which of the characters would you like to be at least a little more like? I mean, I think I'd probably like to be a little more like Eleanor. You know, not not the selfish parts of her, but the the, the parts that don't take any guff from anyone. The the parts that I mean, she's. She has an intense belief in herself and confidence born out of necessity, but it's 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 a beautiful thing when it's guided in the right direction, as as happens to her character over the course of the show. Mm-hmm. Might not be a rabbi, but I'm pretty sure those are answers in line with many of the rabbis who have co-hosted this podcast. But not, but, but not all of them, because we do, I don't know whether anybody is playing Vegas-style betting games or drinking games or over-unders, but, but not as many rabbis or cheaties as, as you think among our very scientific sample of all, of all Jewish educators. We have a form of the, the Good Place origin story question, which I think Rebecca is going to ask in a minute. But Dan, I think you have the basic question. Yeah, this is Dan. So Eric, forgive my horrific ignorance on this matter, but I have no idea what an editor editor does when it comes to like, you know, TV and movies. So I was hoping that maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're not alone. Most people don't know what an editor does. Most people out of the business don't know what an editor does. Does An editor is, is, is very, very important. If I do say so myself. An editor does a few things. An editor watches all the footage that is shot and starts assembling. So I don't know if you've ever been on a set, but basically you shoot a scene anywhere from like five to 50 times from different angles, with different camera movements, with different variations on the dialogue. And so my first job is just to watch it all and decide what's best, what looks the best, what are the best 
angles, like how, you know, am I, am I seeing Eleanor's face at this crucial moment? Do I want to see someone in the background? Do I want to hide someone in the background and reveal them later? I'm sort of basically deciding on how the scene should unfold and picking the best performances. The very, like in that, in that early kind of stage, it's a very crucial job. And I'm working by myself. As they're shooting, I get the footage. I usually am about a day behind them. So they shoot something. By the next day, I'm putting it together. And they're busy shooting the next thing. So they're not like looking over my shoulder. I'm just like doing it on my own. It, like it, that beginning part, the editor has complete power. And that power doesn't last because eventually the director comes in or the producer comes in or the writer comes in. And they say, you know what? I think maybe we used this version where Eleanor is like a little bit kinder to Chidi, you know, or something like that. So we make tweaks and, and that kind of thing. But in TV, you know, a lot of times the editor is the person kind of next to the writer who might know the show better than anyone else. Directors are often guests on TV shows. So a director will come in, direct one episode, direct two episodes, but the editor has seen everything. And so oftentimes as the show goes on by like season two, three, four, the editor kind of just knows the show and like knows how to put it together. And so a lot of times when I'm actually putting a cut together, it doesn't change that much because I, because I'm like, I'm like into the DNA of the show. I like know, know what it is. Now, once the show is sort of like built and assembled and you can sort of like watch it, the big thing that happens is I start trimming. And that's something I usually do with the showrunner who is this person in charge. That's sort of like a term that a lot of people don't know, like the showrunner, but it's basically like the person who either created the show or her, or who was sort of like in charge, basically. That person on The Good Place was Mike Sure. So when you assemble an episode of The Good Place, it's usually somewhere between 25 and 28 minutes long. It's, it's like sort of like a range, but the show has to air at 21 minutes and 30 seconds, which is less. <laughs> so a huge part of my job is figuring out how to go from like 26 minutes, say, to 21 minutes and 30 seconds. And that's kind of like the, like the thing that takes the most amount of time because that's literally like Mike and I sitting there and being like, okay, this joke is funny, but is it as funny as this joke? Mm, okay, let's cut it. Or like, hey, this plot point is like actually kind of revealed in this other scene. So maybe we don't need to do it again. So let's cut it, you know? And you start trimming and trimming and getting it down. And, and the advantage of all of that is that when you trim it from 26 minutes to 21.30, you get the best of the best, the cream of the crop, like the funniest jokes, the most impactful moments. Those are the things that stay. The challenge is sometimes you can't, like sometimes you get to like 23 minutes and you're like, everything that's left is really, really important. <laughs> like we can't cut anything. And so then you really have to like bat your head against the wall. And a lot of times what we do is we know internally, we're like, okay, we have to like, we call it, we have to like sacrifice the, this, this, this thing that we love, but we know that we can eventually air a longer version. So there are extended cuts of all the good place episodes that are on Peacock or whatever, you know, they're not that much longer. They're usually like a minute, minute and a half, maybe two minutes longer, but it, that's sort of like privately, we sort of consider that those like the best versions of the show, because those are the ones where they have, you know, just things that we love that we had to cut for time that, you know, that we can restore later. So, so yeah, I mean, that's basically what an editor does. It starts with sort of assembling everything, picking the takes, picking the angles, building the episode, putting in sound effects and music and all that stuff, and then sort of shaping it, bringing it down to time, getting it to sort of like the best version of itself that it could possibly be. Does that all make sense? <laughs> yeah, this is John. I have a, a follow-up question, but first I, I'm smiling. I don't know if the others are, but... Are you so going to say what I'm going to say? Oh, I, we'll see. And and so we're recording this on October 13th, which is, by the way, my wedding anniversary. Shout out to my wife, Lori, Ooh. who also is one of the reasons I you know, got back into watching the show. But it's very soon after uh, most of us, all of us, delivered high holiday <laughs> sermons. And, and the idea of having like a, a shorter trimmed cut and then a long cut is so... I'm sure my congregants would appreciate if I had done that. 
<laughs> is that what you're going to say, Sari? Yeah, totally. I was going to say, first of all, I, I feel like I never feel more LA than when I use the term showrunner. I'm always excited to be like, oh yeah, that's my friend. They're the showrunner on. And then I feel immediately very in yeah. the industry. But yeah, like I, I mean, and I also, I teach homiletics. So I teach like the art of writing sermons. And one of the things that I talk about, and I don't know if you have to do this as much, right, is the idea of like killing your darlings, right? That sometimes like the thing you have to take out to make it all work right is actually like the thing that you love the most, right? <laughs> Where you're like, it, I know it doesn't, or it, like either it doesn't work or I don't, like that's the thing that needs to go, but it's the one that you're like, oh, you know. Yeah. And I, do you, I ask, here's a question. Oh, sorry, Rebecca. You I, go. I was going to ask if there's something that you left on the cutting room floor where you, that you really loved that you want to share with us. You know, there are like individual like little jokes that like probably wouldn't even make sense out of context, you know, just like little funny little things that like, it's like, like I like, you know, so you asked me the character that I, most related to the character I kind of most, you know, would like to be a little bit more like. My favorite character on the show was Jason, just because I, I like, I love a lovable idiot. Like, that's kind of like my favorite character on any TV show. So most of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor that I regret are just little Jason moments where he just like says something like totally insane that like maybe no one even would laugh at, but I just thought it was hilarious. But, but yeah, I mean, the thing is that like, you know, there are things that, Mike would say, okay, let's cut this joke. I don't, I don't love this joke. And if I really, really loved it, I would like fight for it. <laughs> I would say like, like, okay, I know we should probably cut this, but like, here's why I should stay. And by the end of the good place, we had such a relationship there where like he more times than not, he would, he would give in and I've been let some joke live that <laughs> that he wanted to kill, which was nice. That was one of the, the little perks of being on the this, this show for four seasons. My follow-up question about about editing is you were describing getting things after they were filmed. And in the position you you were in, did you have input, you know, like to a director? You would know how something might look. Would you talk to a director about, would you think about shooting it this way, you know, so that you'd have, you'd know a little bit about what might be coming or help to, you know, or say, I'm looking for this kind of thing already. Maybe they can give me more of that. Usually not before, because there's enough people like, you know, there's so before every episode of television is shot, there's something called a tone meeting where the director sits down with the showrunner and usually with the writer and I'm usually there. And the, the directors are prepped on like the style of the show and like, you know, the emotion of the show and, and the, I you know, and, and the things they like to see and the things that work tend to work and tend to don't work. So they're pretty well prepped in that regard. Every now and then, this doesn't happen very often, but every now and then when I'm when I'm putting together an, an episode, I'll say, oh, wow, they missed something. You know, either it's like a, by an accident or because they didn't think it was important, you know, like just like a, a, a shot of someone reacting or a shot of like, a, like an insert of like, you know, what, what's that person looking at? And so then it's my job to call the producer and be like, hey, we need to pick this up, which means they have to, you know, go back, like add something to the, to the schedule in a week or so where they can find time to grab an additional shot. And so that's another really important part of the job, because if I wasn't saying, hey, 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 you missed something, you know, they wouldn't know. They would just keep going. And then the show would, you know, it would probably be the end of the world. But usually it's pretty helpful to have someone like just checking over everything and being like, oh, wait, take a look at this thing. So I think to get into your your kind of origins, Rebecca formulated a version of this question. We probably should say, just for the listeners, that that you, Eric, are not Jewish and and cool. You're the first not Jewish member of our co-hosting group. So I'm like delightedly curious as to what we're going to make together about some of our philosophical conversations. Rebecca? Oh, we could uh, ordain you as a, as a rabbi at the end of this discussion, if you would like. Yeah, if you're so, interested, I don't to add. Tell us a little bit about how you came to The Good Place what and what attracted you to working on the show. Yeah. In TV, you start with a script. You get sent a script, usually of the first episode, unless the show's already kind of like, you know, going plus a season or two. So I was sent the first script, the pilot script, and I just liked it. I thought it was great. I had no idea where it was going. Mike didn't tell anyone working on the show about the twist at the end of the first season. He didn't even tell the cast. 
Yeah, didn't know. And until until about like midway through the first season, Kristen Kristen Bell. But uh, there's like there's like some video I think you see it online of like of telling the cast the twist and people like you know people's minds blowing. So yeah, I didn't I didn't know where the show was going. I thought it was just cute and charming and interesting. I the the script came to me because I'd been working with another producer on the sh- the main producer on the show, the guy named Morgan Sackett. And 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 in in this business, that's it's all like 90% of work is just the people you know. So I I was working on another show called Veep with Morgan Sackett, who was the producer of Veep and also the producer of The Good Place. And he was like, hey, want to come to this other show that I'm working on? And I was like, great. And that's just how it happens. And it's and it's like it's it's very hard to to like pick a show based on the script for one episode. You know, like a lot of shows have a rough beginning and become amazing, you know, or maybe they have a good beginning and they quickly go go downhill. Like it's a really tricky. I feel like a lot of pressure always when I'm trying to pick my next show because I'm like, how do I know this is going to be the next good place or something, you know, but there's just you have to be zen about it. There's just no way to know. So we're kind of in a way on this podcast without trying to say that the good place was a was pedagogical. You know, we know that it wasn't, but it taught a lot of things. And we're sort of lightly just sort of mashing those things that it could teach, you know, together with stuff that we like to teach or think about or showing kind of what we learn, even when it sort of changes some of our Jewish Talmudic, you know, perspectives on things. So, But I'm wondering whether the kind of ideas of the show affect how you would do your work on this compared to some other project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's not pedagogical. Like most of the lessons of the show were pretty important, were very important to to all of us. You know, we always had this sort of like, like there was like this list on the wall of the offices where it was like a list of things that every episode had to, to be. It was like, is it funny? Is it surprising? Is it emotional? And it, and is it, does it teach a moral lesson basically? And yeah, I mean, so much of that was, you know, this process of, of getting it down from like 26, 27 minutes to 21, 30, like you, you have to be careful because you can, you can be like, oh, we don't need that line. But it's like, well, actually that line is the thing that imparts the lesson, you know, or, or, you know, that makes someone realize that like they're acting immorally or, you know, so it, it, it was very important. And we, it was actually incredibly fun to sit in the room with Mike and, you know, cause when we're editing the episode, Mike sure just sets up his desk behind mine. And from like, you know, like 9am to five or six, it's usually like, we don't work crazy long hours, but like from those hours, he just sits back there and I sit in front of him and we work on the show and we just spend a lot of time talking about what the show is and what it should be. And, and that all comes through in the editing. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was really important for us to make something that was funny and surprising and emotional, but also had something to say about moral philosophy. Because funny and moral philosophy always go in the same sentence. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that was the, the challenge. Right, it was great. It off, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, I think it was, in the, it was pretty sure it was in the first season where Chidi and Eleanor are having an argument and Chidi says something about Aristotle and Eleanor is like, you know, who died and made Aristotle like the king of morality? <laughs> She's like Plato. Plato. <laughs> and and it's it's like that's that's a hard trick to pull off, like make those those things funny, but Oh, did it. You know, you mentioned, I think, when we were corresponding, Eric, that that the episode, I think it was 35, that's the don't let the good life pass you by was particularly interesting to you. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, from a craft perspective, it was really fun to have an episode that had a big fight scene in it, which, which, which was fun. It ends with this big fight scene where Janet kind of beats up a bunch of demons. Um, <laughs> but it starts with this little kind of mini homage to Lost, which may, I don't know, like a lot of people picked up on it. Basically, we there's the season two opener of Lost starts with a guy kind of starting his day and going through this routine. And there's a Mamas and Papas song that's playing and you can't, you can't see his face the whole time. You're probably wondering who this guy is. And then there's sort of like a big reveal that he's actually Desmond in the hatch. Okay. Maybe you guys don't watch Lost. I don't know, but it's a sort of an important moment because it's like this whole world that we didn't know existed. And so for us, we kind of wanted to nod at that. We had the, another Mamas and Papa song playing, guy getting starting his day, can't see his face. And then it's a big reveal 
that it's Doug Parsett, who's the service character that we've talked about a lot. And it's also revealed that's Michael McKean, who's an amazing actor and so much fun to edit his performance. And it's this kind of very like beautiful little story, I think. This this guy who has sort of gotten this glimpse into the way the, the afterlife is set up and has taken it to its logical conclusion, which is that he has to spend every waking moment and every ounce of his blood and treasure trying to, to do good and has become a happiness pump, like which is the, the show that, you know, terms of the show uses of just someone who's just gives away all their happiness to other people. And it's sort of like, is, is that living? I mean, it's actually a good question. I don't know. Like, you know, that, there's some version of that, that, that haunts me. Right. Like that, like, you know, instead of buying like a, a new shirt, I could spend that money saving for more solar panels. So I can make sure that my kids are like, you know, have 0.0001% better chance of being happy, like, you know, in a more comfortable world. I don't know. It's like, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's, it was one of the, the episodes that just, I thought perfectly encapsulated just for like the, the, the fun and the humor of the good place, but also this question of, of how do you live your life? I have a follow-up question to that, which is you you brought up the the question that that episode in particular surfaced in you. I'm curious if there's anything in particular about working on the show or any episode of the show or any question that the show surfaced that made you think about actually act on living your life in a different way. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I became a vegetarian because of The Good Place. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's like a big... That's a big one. Yeah, yeah. No, what? I'm... What? what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean it helped that mike mike was a vegetarian and so we talked a lot about it but you know i i tried kind of kicking meat a couple times in my life and just didn't go through with it and you know it's sort of like when you start thinking about living the, a moral life and i don't know like i like i it's i it's hard to like talk about being a vegetarian without coming off as like preachy or whatever you know and, and i'm not one of those people like preach but but yeah, it's sort of like I realized that like I'd sort of spent I sort of spent like my entire life up to that point just like forcibly not caring about animal welfare because I'm just like, oh, meat tummy, you know. And then like the moment I kind of like a switch flipped and I was like, like, I don't have to eat meat and started not doing it. Then I was just sort of like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is like obviously the right thing to do. But, but yeah, that, that completely came out of the good place. Just like sort of like going through the list of just like, you know, like what are the ways that I live that are not as moral as, as they could be, but without like sacrificing all of my happiness and, and like, like vegetarianism actually turned out to be pretty easy because we live in, I live in Los Angeles. There's an amazing amount of good vegetarian food here. It's not like I'm like not eating well, I eat great, you know? So I was like, oh, okay, that one, I can do that one without actually too much sacrifice. But yeah, so that, that was a big one. What, what was your moral philosophy background before working on this show? Very, I mean, very little. Like I read Aristotle in college, and that was probably it. Yeah, I feel like we had to read Plato in high school. I feel like I have some remember memory. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, some really basic reading and understanding. But and I'm not. I'm no expert now. Like you know, Mike's Mike spent like a year just reading moral philosophy while he was coming up with the show, and so like he he went deep. And they also had consultants on the show come and speak to them several times. So they really got like the real, the writers got like the real crash, crash course in it. I am vaguely familiar with a bunch of the concepts, but it was, I loved all learning about all of it. I think maybe this is a bit related and this has kind of been a certain, I wouldn't say debate among the four of us, but we have different styles about it, is how much of it is being able to articulate the moral philosophy behind like a decision about being a vegetarian or and how much is, do you feel like it's just sort of a, it sort of all went in the hopper and something c comes out, you know, as your decision. Can you, can you restate that? Yeah, like I think I, I would say of, of, <laughs> of us, I'm the one who's like, I want to learn a philosophy and figure out if I can like deduce what I can do from that, as opposed to let's kind of throw it all in the, the ethics grinder and some magic in my soul or whatever, a brain will happen and out will come a sense, you know, that I shouldn't eat meat or something like that. Are you conceptual or less so kind of when you think about those big decisions? I think, yeah, I mean, I think less conceptual it's actually a scene in the good place you know i mean one of the sort of one of the tensions between chidi 
And Eleanor was at GD was always sort of trying to find a system that explained everything, sort of like made sense for everything. And Eleanor, at some point, I think in like the third season, she basically like kind of realizes she's like, she's like, there's there's parts of things of all this that kind of make sense, you know? And like, I like, you know, using this philosophy here and this philosophy here. And I don't have to be like dogmatic about it, about anything. It's less like Chidi was always like, essentially, he was frozen by indecision and, and wanted some book to basically tell him what to do in all times. And Eleanor, it was more about sort of like listening to the voice in her head that like was sort of telling her the right thing and then kind of grafting ideas and philosophies on top of that. And that sort of feels to be more me. Like, you know, when I think about vegetarianism, it was sort of just like, yeah, that voice was always in there, like saying like, probably not a good idea to like, you know, eat a ton of meat and just like listening to it and then realizing like, you know, all the things that clicked into place after that. That's sort of how I live mm-hmm. my life. When, one of the things that I really loved about that episode, particularly the Doug Forsett one, is that it seemed to be the one where this issue of utilitarianism and total happiness got sort of clarified like this is an input but like it can be really too far and one of the things i super loved that i didn't really get till the last time i watched it was that the the other scene in the bar with jason's jacksonville pool game where you make up your own rules and your own points it took me it, i didn't get that like like oh that's really about the same thing <laughs> you know that's a ridiculous version of 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 counting points and us you know rabbis sometimes we're in the mode of we're standing up and we can give in one voice we can give one message for maybe 21 minutes and 30 seconds or hopefully less or we're teaching live you know and interacting but you guys have this thing where you you can kind of teach something from two angles at once because of the tools that you have and i just think wow that would be so cool you know, I'm just super both amazed by and often jealous of that you that you could guide people through a process of thinking in that way, you know, without kind of hitting people over the head with it and then being entertaining while you do it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I can only take so much credit. I mean, the writers on the show are, are the true stars. TV is a writer's medium. And so any great TV show, it's basically because of the writing. One of the things that I really learned about writing over the years and through this process was just how much revision is important and how, you know, writing something once and then revising it and then like making it deeper. And, and it was so crucial to the process. And I'm curious, actually, when you write, you know, how, what, what is your revision process? How much do you find yourself revising? Do you ever go back to a text and revisit it and rework it? Like say something you wrote a while back, you know, because that's, yeah, speak to that. It's funny, I was going to ask you, so I will speak for myself, like, and I'm looking at Rebecca, because she's usually one of the people who has to read very early, right? Like, I was, again, because I teach, so I was telling my students, like, for a big, you know, it's usually for the high holidays, like for for a regular weekend, I just sort of write something. And, but when I know it's sort of a big moment, which I guess every episode is, like, I rarely is the finished product, actually, it's like barely tangentially related to whatever I first written, right? Like, it actually takes me multiple times to actually figure out like, oh, oh, wait, that's what I'm trying to say, right? Like, it comes in with lots of different ideas. But one of the, but one of the things that I was curious about, and I, I don't know, I don't, are you ever in the writer's room? Do you ever get to hang out in there? As much as I can, because it's amazing. They're all so funny and, and interesting. It's a very, cl- it's a small room with a bunch of people stuck in. And so like, I can like perch in the corner and, and sort of like be there for a certain amount of time. And then it starts to get awkward. So like, it's not like I can be there for 10 hours, but yes, I was, I was in there for, at times and loved it. So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about, especially on a show like The Good Place, right, which I feel like is thematic. I mean, it is episodic, but it also is more sort of thematic than episodic. You know, what I will do, and I almost always do, is like, I save all those different drafts, right? And I I find that I do come back to them, right? Where I'm like, oh, this year, that thing that I wrote, I mean, I need to rework it and it needs to be, you know, for this year, but like the kernel and even some of the imagery I might've used works. And I'm curious if that ever happens in a writer's room, right? Like, do they like, if they have a joke and it's like, okay, it doesn't actually work here, but it's a really good joke. Like, yes. am I saving it for another time? 
Absolutely. All, all the time. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So the beginning of each season, a lot of the work that gets done is called breaking the season. So you basically, ha- you know, you have 13 episodes and it's like, what's going to happen in those 13 episodes? And so you usually spend the first couple of weeks of every season just like talking about like what's going to happen. And then you sort of come up with a rough idea like, okay, here's what's going to happen in one and two and three and four. When you come up with that rough idea, usually at that point, I kind of barged into the room. You know, it became like a routine where Mike would then pitch the season to me. And it was sort of like helpful for him to like talk it all through and be like, okay, here's what's going to happen in the beginning. Here's what's going to happen next episode. This is going to happen in the next episode. Even just like saying it out loud and, and sort of like, like talking about the flow and the structure super useful. But what I noticed, of course, is that like, that would be like, okay, that sounds great. Like I have two questions and blah, blah, blah. And then I would go away and I would come back like six weeks later when they were like done writing. And like, I'd be like, well, what happened to that thing that you said was going to happen? And you were like, oh, we figured out it, it didn't work, you know, or like, or like, oh, well, that episode, we made it like one scene in this, in this, in this other episode. And, you know, so they're always like taking pieces because you, 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 you know, the big picture version, when you actually sit down to write it and, and, and figure it out and figure out the nuts and bolts of it, you're sometimes you're just like, ah, this isn't working. You know, the, the idea that I had is, is not working, but maybe I can like reuse this little chunk here and that, and that kind of thing. So yes, happened, that happens all the time. This is John. I, I to your question, Eric. I I actually learned a lot by listening to the official podcast, Mark Evan Jackson's podcast, and listening to you all talk about how you do the process you're talking about. And before this high holiday season, I had a, a sort of a tone meeting with myself, and I said, you know, what do I? What are some big ideas? What are some feelings? I tend to be a a, a one note person sometimes or one tone in this way how do i make sure to kind of get the the mix right and that helps set some some parameters for me i i did notice that this year i wrote something i do off, i i looked at things that i had written in the past that i thought this is great and i wish i could just read this exact same thing this year because i can't believe i'll write anything better than that that <laughs> happens to me but so i set it up but i figured out something else i wanted to do and when it was done and even after i had finished sharing it with the congregation i said wow this really is the same thing or a revisit of something that i that i had done and really been thinking about a few years ago and i do like what I added to it. It's interesting, Sari and I did a recording on, on our podcast here, and we we ended up actually sort of picking up an issue from season one that, that she and I had talked about in season three. And it was so much fun to see that like the same things popped into our mind, but we were, you know, we thought about them a little differently and we could, we could see different things. And I think that's, sometimes I compare this to like a sourdough starter where I'm constantly sort of drawing something out of the same thing and making a new hopefully a new tasty bread out of it. I don't know, Dan, Rebecca, anything you want to say about your, your process? I just like the idea of you're having a little tone meeting with yourself. Oh, that, that feels like something Chidi would do. He would just talk to himself in his mind. Try to... Well, I wanted to talk to all of you, but I wasn't sure you were available. <laughs> Convince himself of all the different options. Just picking up on Chidi again, Eric, you had actually mentioned, I'm so curious to hear the, like, the thought process of like this moral philosophy professor being the avatar for the audience in, in so many ways, as you had said. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit to speak about that a little bit more because it's such an interesting decision about making, centering a character with like, you know, as the show makes fun of, like nobody likes moral philosophy professors and yet like he's supposed to be, and I totally agree with that, but he, it's just interesting how that characterization ended up coming together. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that is universally felt to be honest, you know, I mean, I think that Eleanor was designed to be the, the main character, at least in season one, but she's a hard character at first to identify with because she's, she's so, she's, she's damaged, you know, she's, I mean, she's, she's got all these issues. She's incredibly selfish. She's, she's very prickly. And so I think it's almost sort of like an accident that I think a lot of people started identifying with Chi, but the show, I think really rang with that. And, and even though Chidi was sort of, would, would get very worked up and sort of pushed to extremes, I think he, he, because he, because he reacted to a lot of the things, the crazy things that are happening with like incredulity, you know, and, and like almost was like less cool about everything. That was sort of the thing that, but people latched onto of this sort of like, like, yeah, like I would be 
freaking out if, if I was in that position as well. And I don't know. I mean, I think there's just, I think there's just something so lovable about Chidi. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely the, like the kindest of all of them. And I think that, I don't know, he's just, he's just, a, he's just a guy trying to, trying to do, do well in the, in the, in the afterlife. And so, yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think if you ask people, like, I don't think everyone would say they relate to Chidi or that he was necessarily the avatar for, for the audience, for everyone, but maybe just for a certain type of person like me. Can I ask a follow-up about that? So one thing that you just said that made me think of is like, as rabbis, we hear from our congregants what they think about the things that we say from the Bema or other things like that. And so you talked a little bit about like discovering what works yeah. in, in a show. So I was wondering like what, how, again, betraying my total ignorance about this, like how does the feedback process work where you learn what's actually resonating with your audience? That's a great question. There's a few different ways. I like Twitter. I know people have their Twitter issues, but I'm actually a Twitter fan, especially when the episode, when an episode of TV airs, there's people that tweet about it as it's going on, you know, and you can just sort of literally like tap into Twitter and do a search for a good place and just see like a live feed of people tweeting and you you get a pretty good sense of like what people are liking, what people aren't. And yeah, I mean, I, I found myself learning a lot about the show through that. And the way, the, the way it's structured, the way the TV season is structured, we basically are still editing the final like five or six episodes when the first one airs. So like, we can really kind of react, not in real time, but like within the season. And it's not like we're changing that much, that dramatic way, but uh, we do we do learn. And and like part of it is also just like how, how we're reacting. TV shows often get better from season to season. And part of it is just, uh, the writers learn how to write for these characters, you know, and, and the, the directors learn how to shoot them better and the editors learn how to edit better. Like everyone just gets like, like better. And you're just sort of like, you just remember like, oh, that hilarious, that thing that made me laugh like really hard. That's because we like really let Jason be a dum-dum or like, you know, we like, you know, maybe we pull back a little bit on Tahani being the most gross version of herself because like, man, when we tried this other version, we didn't laugh as much, you know, so there's a lot of internal kind of checking in on things, but then, yeah, there is, you do get feedback and there's also, there's also critics that the, the, the onion, or I guess it's the AB club and vulture like do episode by episode reviews, you know? And so you can kind of just see like, okay, like, like that's this person, this is one person, but they think that the show is strongest when it's focusing on this and less strong this. And so again, it doesn't like change our past completely, but you do, you kind of just keep it all in mind and you sort of see what people are, are really grabbing onto. So I'm jumping in, not on the technical. I'm just curious what, I mean, which character, like from your perspective, and you said like you spent a lot of time with these characters, right? like yeah. probably more than, more, certainly more than the directors. Who do you think grew the most? over the course of the four seasons? I mean, Jason grew the least, probably. I, you know, I mean, it's 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 either, it's either, in my mind, it's either Eleanor or, or Chidi. I think probably Eleanor grew the most. She was designed that way, so it makes sense that she would grow the most. But like, in a weird way, Chidi, his level of like happiness by the end really got dialed in. Like he became so, like a much more, secure and calm version of himself. And I think if you put the two of them next to one another, like he's almost like the most unrecognizable, even though he didn't like travel so far as more just like, he just kind of like clicked in, in, in him, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was really, I mean, you know, I'm skipping forward, but like, yeah, you said I spent a lot of the time with those characters. I mean, that, you know, I edited the finale of The Good Place and it was, brutally hard to to you know to i mean the whole episode is just saying goodbye to them one by one and just it was like like wow that's the last time i'll get to like work on a scene with gd or you know like it's a cut to janet like smiling or turning her head or you know i don't know it was just it was it was yeah it was it was emotional after you do your editing do you like to go back and watch the show like i don't like to watch my sermons after i get them but do you like to go back and, or do you look at them and say, oh, I could have done that or I could have done that? I pretty much never watch with the exception of every now and then there's like a screening, you know, like, I mean, I work on movies as well. So, so sometimes a lot of times with movies, there'll be like a, 
premiere or something, but even in television, sometimes there'll be like a, you know, for the finale, actually we didn't do this for the finale. We did it for a few episodes where we would just like get the crew together and show them the episode or, you know, or, or there's often Emmy campaigns where you invite a whole bunch of Emmy voters to watch and hopefully vote for your show. And so we would have like a big screening. That's actually super fun because in TV in particular, you, it's mostly just me and one other or two other people watching the show and deciding what we think is good and, and, and funny, you know. And so then to sort of screen it for a large group of people, it's very gratifying to listen to them laugh and like see their smiles and, and see them enjoy it and, and be like, oh, okay, we, we made some good choices. <laughs> it's interesting listening to y'all and different interviews talk about what it was like to work on the show. And it seems like there was a real sense that this was a special ensemble, you know, the the creative crew, the cast and kind of everybody involved. And and I'm wondering if you think that's just like that happened and, and that's good or did do you think that the content and the kind of substance of the show had anything to do with bonding people together or that's just a happy coincidence? I think in general, if you're working on a comedy, you know, you kind of have to have a certain kind of personality. I guess it's not true. Some, some, some people, okay, let me take this back, come at it from a different angle. I honestly think, I mean, in most organizations, hopefully in yours as well, the, the tone is set at the top and Mike sure did a great job of just bringing together a group of people who he wanted to work with and that were kind and talented. And you know, that's just, that's who he is. That, you know, I've worked with people who are not like that. And the tone of the work is very different. It's, it's not as fun. It's not as, not as collaborative. Mike is one of those classic guys who just hires good people and trusts them to do their work and doesn't like get too detail oriented. He doesn't like go through every little moment in the show and uh, second guess everything you've done, which is really empowering. And I think that's a huge part of it is just everyone involved was like, okay, I, I have the power to make the show better by putting in a little bit more effort or a little bit more thought. And, uh, and I think that's a, a big part of what made it feel special. Do you want to, do you want to turn the tables on us with any, any particular questions to a group of rabbis i'm curious how, what how you if if or how you use humor in your work you know i mean we that was a huge part of of our shows using humor to to make these moral lessons go down smoothly and i'm wondering if you do the same i mean i like to think i do it's debatable if i'm good at it you know look i think and i'm gonna i'm gonna speak for everyone on the screen and then they can speak for themselves <laughs> right like I mean, I think most of us see our job, you know, similar, pretty similarly in the sense of like our job is to translate this sort of world of ideas into a world of practicality, right? To say like, okay, there's this theory or there's this law or there's this teaching and I need you to understand that was, you know, written however many, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago and I need us to understand it and talk about it in 2022. And for me, my two ways are pop culture and or humor again mm -hmm. to varying success with the humor i will say i think also you know our job is to help people be able to hear our messages sometimes when they're very hard and sometimes when they're deeply counter to what people want to do and so humor among other tools as sari said is really one of the ways that we can do that in inappropriate moments less at a funeral although I often find at a funeral, people love to tell funny stories of the deceased because it can't just be only sad, right? They bring, they use humor to bring that person, that person to life. And so really thinking about how we can help people hear our messages that doesn't sound like we're lecturing them on, well, Jewish philosophy or moral philosophy or the Torah or anything else, but really like we're in it with them. So I would uh, similarly just double click on what Rebecca just said, which is I had a mentor who once said about funerals that, you know, you you've, you know, you've done a, a good job when you've made them laugh and when you've made them cry, like, and you need to do both. Both are an important part of of the work of, of celebrating the life of a person. But I would also agree with with Sari. I think I think I can I, I can say with great confidence that John is a very, very funny person, having heard do a very skillful sketches at the talent shows, bait cafes at a, at a conference that we've attended together. But I, 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 
I attempt humor, but I'm not. I thought you were going to say I was funny, but okay, fine. (laughs) I mean, Sarah, you're funny too, but like, you know. Oh, no. no. But not that funny. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm more familiar with John's work. (laughs) Dear. Oh, my God. I, I, are you done, Dan? Were you going to? It's interesting because I I think of myself both as a very serious and serious presenting person and somewhat, I just love, I, I love humor. I was, you know, Monty Python and Saturday Night Live and MASH. And I just sort of grew up, you know, with all this kind of stuff. And and this year, because again, thinking about the season we're in, I had some some points I was kind of insistent on that I wanted to to help people understand. And I wondered if sort of jokes to loosen people up or jokes to kind of, I don't know, disarm folks at the beginning, if that would be honest or not, or whether it would be just manipulation. And I had to, for 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 one or two times I spoke, I, I decided, you know, how do I know whether I believe in, in the 30 seconds I'm going to I'm gonna say something really funny or self-deprecating or whatever. And I found I found this time I had to justify it to myself. And when I did, it 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 worked. Like it worked for me. I felt in my skin talking and and I got and I got a you know a chuckle around. But I, I think that people would, you know, often tell me like, loosen up, you know, you're or I heard you on this podcast, you're so much funnier than you. <laughs> <laughs> than, you, than you've let on, and, and I think there's been a big movement in, particularly some some of the the kind of growing evangelical Christianity of of just saying, oh, of course we're going to go toward humor and pop culture. Like that's, you know, people don't want to be as, as Sarah said, people and and Rebecca, people don't want to be hectored and stuff. So you know, don't even start there. You know, start somewhere else. And I've really been been chewing on that. Makes perfect sense. What else do you want to throw at us? I guess I'm curious if if. Y'all have a favorite episode of The Good Place. I love the finale, but the one that I think about the most and I find to be just, we started off by talking about pedagogy, is the actual simulation of the trolley problem. Because <laughs> it's just one of those, you know, problems in ethics that comes up so often that we talk about. And and so just yeah. having like a great, you know, don't even need that much context. I'm just going to throw this up there and we're going to watch and like, because it's one of the things that's so, so somewhat challenging about sharing popular culture as mm-hmm. part of our work is it's like, how much context do I have to give in order for you to understand this? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah. The problem that, clip is, is, that clip has been used in philosophy classes and, and various things. We, we Mike often gets invited to like speak at a, like a, philosophy class at, at Harvard or something, you know, and he's always like, can you, can you export the, the trolley problem clip again so I can bring it and show it? <laughs> Sarah, you're going to answer that. I'm trying to think. I will confess as a consumer of both books and television, I rarely remember like a specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I only remember episodes because I work but, on them, but. That's just, I'm like, that's just not how my mind I like, I like. My husband yeah, were on the call. He could tell you like. Minute by minute, exactly which episode. But I'm like, no, I just really loved the whole show. I keep I keep changing, you know, like I and the ones I thought that I loved, you know, things have changed based on kind of their their content too. Like in the in the Jeremy Barramy episode, I just for for some reason I love the the cheaty scenes of him coming unglued and the the peeps and the chili. And stuff. Oh, and, uh, I like my favorite episode is probably. I mean, just because I love John knows I love her so much. My favorite episode, or probably is probably the the first Mindy St. Clair episode. Oh yeah, and like yeah. obsessed with her and the whole idea of the medium place. It is my that's my. So yeah, I, I'll go with that because they just also because like. I don't know, coming of age in New York in the 80s. I'm like, yes, the shoulder pads, the everything. Like yeah, you know, yeah. But yeah. That, I edited that one. That was a really fun one. It was super fun. It was, it was the first one where they got on the train. Yes. Which, um, yes. which, which was, was super fun to work with art. So all the, not all, but almost all the visual effects in the show, some of which are very complicated, were done by one guy, this guy named David Neednoggle. It was like a like a one-man band amazing vfx artist and that was super fun because his office was next to mine and so like you know i would be like editing a scene and then i'd be like okay like how are we gonna make this work like how like the train's gonna pull in here and we're gonna have to like get them on you know and so i would like just go next door and be like david what are we gonna do here and like the two of us would just sort of figure it out It'd be super super from an editing perspective i mean i have a bunch of favorite episodes but there's an episode in the second season Basically, Michael runs the experiment like over and over and over and over and over and over, over again. And it's the one where Eleanor keeps figuring out, oh, 
this is the bad place. This is-. And that one was just so much fun to edit because there's, there was just the rhythms of it were so great. And it was like, basically the whole thing was like a giant montage where, where, you know, and it just sort of felt like the show, the show got like just kind of bigger in that, in that episode. And I remember listening to, it was listening to some random podcast that I listened to about pop culture stuff. And they started talking about the good place. I didn't even know they were going to start talking about the good place. And it was during the second season. And the, one of the hosts was like talking about that episode. And he was like, that is the episode where the show went from a good show to a great show. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it was like one of the nicer pieces of feedback I've ever gotten in my life. But yeah, that was, that was a really fun one. Eric, if there's anybody from earlier in your life that you might want to call out or give a shout out to you as someone who first got you maybe thinking about ethics or ethical philosophy. I mean, my mom, you know, she, she always, she was a very good person and, and always thought a lot about, you know, how to live your life. And she probably spent, that probably manifests itself like a lot in her life as, as guilt, just sort of feeling like guilty about doing the wrong thing. And that, and so one you are things, Jewish, apparently. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> one of the things I learned from her was to not let guilt overwhelm me. And, you know, if you, you make mistakes, try to do better next time. I feel bad about them. There's not really a ton of, aside from like the lesson, the learning lesson, there's not much to gain from guilt. You know, she unfortunately passed away this year, but she was an amazing woman and learned so much from her. What was her name? Christine. Sorry for your loss. Maybe may her memory be for a blessing. Thank you so much, Eric Kissack, for being with us. Thank you, and Eric. And a My fun pleasure. reunion. Uh, I love talking about the good place, and <laughs> I hope people keep. When the pandemic started, took a little jag here. When the pandemic started, it, you know, we were all locked up in our houses, and it was sort of like like hard to know what like how to act, like what to do. The world just seemed crazy, and and there was just like. I felt like kind of like lost, you know, and I remember I was just texting with Mike one day and I was like reading, I was reading something about Buddhism and, and about the kind of like the sort of Zen philosophy and I was trying to do that. And I was like, what, you know, like Buddhism, like, how do you, like, how do you determine like when to be Zen and when to act and when to stand up and when to fight? And, you know, like all these things that are like texting Mike all these things, you know? And, and I was like, it's just, it's just so, it's just so hard to know how to live. And he was like, well, there's a good TV show about this. It's called The Good Place. <laughs> and I think you actually made it with me. And uh, it's got a lot of good lessons. So maybe check that out. <laughs> it, it made me laugh and it made me, it made me happy. All right. Thanks all for talking. Yeah. Thanks so much, Eric. Really good seeing you all. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. And that's all for this special episode of Tove. Thanks for listening. We've got another conversation with a Good Place insider coming up pretty soon, Professor Todd May, who is the main philosophical advisor to the show. So you'll want to be subscribed if you aren't already. If you've listened to the end, hopefully that means you're enjoying what we're doing and getting something out of it. So give Tove a good rating and spread the word. Do it old school or by social media. We'll put links in our show notes on tovegoodplace.com to Eric's appearances on the official NBC Good Place podcast, as well as to his website, erickissack.com. He's also at Eric Kissack on Twitter and Instagram. You can find out how to connect with Sari Laufer, Rebecca Rosenthal, Dan Ross, and me, John Spirosavet, on our hosts page at tovegoodplace.com. We'd love to hear from you with questions and suggestions related to the podcast. Email tove at tovegoodplace.com or connect with us on social media at tovegoodplace. I'll sign off with this I've taken and adapted from Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, as he concludes each official Good Place podcast. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.